Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. Uh, If you're uh, a little unfamiliar with the book of Matthew, it's the uh, first gospel and first book in the New Testament. So just go to the New Testament and you'll be in Matthew, Matthew 25. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 46. Give you a couple seconds to get there and then we'll jump right in. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the least of the one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the truthfulness thereof. Thank you that um, at times your word comes and it's a balm for our souls. It comforts the weary, that it lifts up the downtrodden. And this very same word also comes with conviction that your people might examine ourselves, not other people, that we would think about ourselves, our own lives, our own hearts, And if we're near to you, if our hearts reflect you and your nature, Father, I pray above all things that you would indeed bind the evil one. I pray right now, as Otis has prayed, that you would do a work first and foremost in us, that as your word goes out, it might fall on good soil. No man can do this. You have to do it, Jesus. And so would you do it? And would you be faithful, Lord, to build up your people? And make us a people who are truly ready for the return of our King. Do so through your servant. Forgive me my sins, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been talking about Advent motifs and why they matter. And um, you'll know shortly which motif I want us to ponder this morning. But every month or so, we confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed. And just so that you know that this creed has been confessed by saints across the ages, thousands of years, 
this creed is confessed by churches that are Reformed and churches that are not. Churches that are Presbyterian and Methodist and Baptist, you name it. There's a common thread of the apostolic teaching that regardless of denominations, God's people have been confessing for a long, long time. And we do so at Redeemer. And we'll go something like this. Redeemer, what do you believe? And we'll say in unison these words, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's the phrase that's important for us this morning. A part of the apostolic teaching is that we believe in two advents, not just that Jesus came as a child through the womb of the Virgin Mary, not just that he suffered on the Pontius Pilate. We believe in a second advent where he will not come as a child. He will come back as a king and he will come back in judgment. He will not come back in humility. We confess that, and, and we confess that every other month or so as a reminder of the apostolic teaching. And so the question that I want to put before us this morning is, one, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that the king is returning? And are you ready? Not if your mama is ready. Are you ready? The thing about it, when Jesus returns, we can't get ready. We have to be ready. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. I want us to consider the, the certainty of the king's return. That's the first point. The king's return is certain. The second point, the king's recompense is certain. And third, his servants must be certainly ready. First thing I want us to consider is the king's return is certain. Now, we're plopping down in Matthew, and so whenever we kind of drop down into a book that we've not been in, it's really important to kind of get our bearings. So what is Matthew's gospel about? Matthew has been concerned from the very beginning of the gospel to trace the lineage of Jesus uh, from King David to Christ himself. And so what, what Matthew wants to do is show that Jesus is the Davidic king. You might remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and says, you will have a throne, a kid who will be king forever and his kingdom will have no end. He will always sit on the throne. And that was not Solomon. Solomon died. David died. That was King Jesus. And so Matthew is concerned with showing us that th he is the fulfillment of that. But Matthew is also concerned with showing us that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Son of Man from Daniel. That vision that Daniel sees of one like the Son of Man whose kingdom towers above all kingdoms, that, that it's Jesus. And then what you see in this section, look at verse 31. Jesus says that about himself, when the son of man. So Jesus is saying, I'm the one that Daniel saw. 
But he also says that I'm the king. You'll see that down in verses 34 and in verse 40, where it says the king will answer them. The king will say to them. And so what you see in Matthew 25 is Jesus is wearing those titles. I am the one that the Old Testament points to and prepares the way for. That's significant. Well, what's significant about the location of what we're looking at this morning? All you have to do is go to the next chapter to Matthew 26 and you'll see it. Matthew says, hey, the Passover is two days away. Right. So that, that, that's a clue that where we are on the Jewish calendar is right around the Passover. That's important because Jesus will be the sacrifice. He will be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, so much so that in Matthew 26, we're told about a woman who spends an elaborate amount of ointment on Jesus, and the disciples say, Jesus, she's wasting that. We can take what she just did and give to the poor, and Jesus says, you're wrong, that you will always have the poor among you, but I will not always be with you. What she has done is prepared my body for burial. And from Matthew 26 on, Jesus is marching towards the cross. And so what you get in Matthew 24 and 25, it's his deathbed sermon. He knows he's about to die in a few days. And what you get are his last words to his disciples, in a sense. Now, what's important about Matthew 24 and 25, if you have a red letter Bible, then it jumps off the page. It's uninterrupted teaching by Jesus for two chapters straight. He does not let the disciples get a word in. He says, I'm the teacher. And what we're going to talk about is so important. You don't question the master right now. Now, where else do we see that in Matthew's gospel? You already know in Matthew, what, five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew five and seven, the Sermon on the Mount, these chapters of uninterrupted teaching, all red letter. The only other time you get that much teaching up from Jesus without interruption is Matthew 24 and 25. You see the point? Matthew is bookending Jesus's earthly ministry, teaching, 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 ministry, teaching, crucifixion. These are the final words of Messiah to his people. Now, what's the subject, you might be asking? It's concerning the precise day and hour of his return. If you go back to Matthew 24, 36, the rap, they, they say, Rabbi, tell us, Tell us about the end of the age. Rabbi, tell us what things will be like when you return. And Jesus says concerning the precise day and hour, no one knows, not the angels, not the son, only the father. And then Jesus says, but what I do know, but what I do know, I will tell you. You get that? And so Jesus starts to give them teaching after teaching after teaching after teaching, and they're all oriented around his return. He says, when I return, it will be like the days of Noah. Noah's going to be the one man who by faith is building an ark when the world is going crazy around him. And it looks so foolish to this man of faith, this man who has found God's grace to be living countercultural to the world around him. And then the day 
day comes, when the storms come and the door is closed, and if you're not ready, you can't get ready. It's too late. Right? He talks about the women who have oil, and some of them don't have enough, and some go to get more oil, but when the bridegroom returns, they're not there, and so they try to get oil and get ready, but the door is closed on them. You can't get ready. You have to be ready. Some say the kingdom of God, the master is taking so long away. Well, let me just kick my feet up and do what I want to do and mistreat my servants and get drunk and do all kind of stuff. And it says, but that moment, the master will return when you're not ready. And so what Jesus is doing in Matthew 24 and 25 is talking about his return. It's certain he's returning. And that's what the passage is about. Notice the first verse, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It doesn't say if the son of man returns. It says when. There's a date out there, Redeemer, when your Messiah and our king is coming. And when he comes this time, notice what it says. He's coming in glory. He's not coming as a child. He's coming as a king. And he's not coming alone. Those angels and archangels that he could have summoned hours before he was crucified, that he told him, if I wanted to, I could, but I want because the Messiah has to die. The Messiah has to suffer. But when the Messiah comes, he's not returning to deal with sin. He's coming to reign and set up his rule. Right? But it it goes on. Then he will sit on the throne. What do you mean then he will sit on his glorious throne? I thought he's at the the, the right hand of God enthroned right now. Yes and amen. But you don't see that right now, do you? That sight is reserved for angels and archangels, the dead in Christ, the father, the son, the spirit. They see it. But it's a day coming when all will see it. Those who pierced him, those who are dead, those who are alive, all will see him. And J.I. Packer says that, that that scene, if you think about it, it's unimaginable. Like, think about this, that every single person to have ever been born, to have ever been conceived, At any point in the history of the world, dead or alive, all of a sudden on this great day when Jesus returns, that that every single person will see him. Like, I can't wrap my mind around that. How is there enough space on the earth for all of us to be crowded together on this earth to see this one person? And how can we all see this one person and be in America and the same people in India can still see the one person? It defies human imagination. But J.I. Packer says human imagination is not the God here. God's sovereignty is. This defies imagination. Now, why? Like, really, why? Why would Jesus spend two chapters talking about his return? Why are these warnings after warnings after warnings? Why? Because of our tendency to forget this. 
our tendency is to focus on the first advent and not see that there's a big pointing arrow on top of the first advent that says, don't forget about the second one. Our tendency to be lulled to sleep by the world like those in Noah's day. Our tendency to, to look at Christians and Christian ethics and behaviors and instruction and, and to think that, man, is, he, is this real? Our tendency to think that the master is so delayed in coming, well, man, I might as well eat, drink, and be married right now and do what I want to do, right? And I get it. The sun rises and it sets and it does it again and again. The hours turn into days and the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into years and the years turn into decades that we have children and we look up and our children are having children and then their children are having children. And we just think that tomorrow is almost prompt, is always coming. And Jesus says, hey, one day tomorrow, as you know, it is not coming. One day you will breathe your last. One day you will enjoy the final sunset from this sun. Because in the new heavens and the new earth, we don't need the sun. And if you're condemned to hell, there will be no light. You get what Jesus is doing? He wants us to not forget that his return is certain. And this is comfort. It's comfort to those who are needy. It's comfort to those who buffet their flesh and fight their sin and wake up every day to fight with themselves and not someone else on Twitter. It happens in the heart of those who know that the biggest threat to the church is me and my sin and my pride. I, I mess things up. To the person who gets up and fights, you long for the day where you don't have to pick the gloves up anymore. To the one who endures a hard life where you're perpetually caring for someone who is sick, and there is no cure. They long for the day to see their daughter leap with joy. His coming is a balm. It's comfort. To the one who lives on the poverty line and doesn't know where the next meal is coming from, but they're like the widow who puts their two cents in. You can't tell me that they aren't excited about the day when Jesus returns because it is a, an end to barely making it by and barely scraping and barely trying to be faithful. To them, to some, his coming is a comfort, right? And to some, his coming is a threat. If you're comfortable, and you know where your next meal is coming from, and you got a good retirement, and you got ease and peace in this life. His comfort, his coming is a threat. It's a warning. Because the tendency is to think that you will always have what you have, and you will always be who you are, and you can kick your feet up like the man in the parable who says, let me build bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns, and Jesus says, you fool, do you not know today your life is required of you? 
His coming, right? It's both a comfort and a warning, but here it is. It's also all grace. If you go back and look at the audience of this sermon or this series of teaching, you'll go back to Matthew 24, and it's the disciples. Look at 24.3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming age? Whoa. You hear that? So who gets to hear this? 24 and 25. It's not the world. It's not the masses. It's his disciples who he calls no longer my servants. You are my friend. I will freely tell you everything you need to know. This is like insider trading. If you run the stock market or have a company, this is like when you, if you have a company and you're about to launch this new product or you are about to tank because your company is taking a hit and here's what you do. You pull your your friend to the side and say, hey, you need to buy or hey, you need to sell, but we don't tell the rest of the world this. You get arrested and sent to prison for that. But in God's kingdom, guess what? It's grace. This is what Jesus is doing. He's pulling the church to the side and saying, hey, let me let you know in on a secret. I'm returning. While they're doing all of that, I'm letting you know that I'm returning. It's grace. Now, the second point to consider is his recompense is certain. Now, look, y'all, I don't think I've ever used the word recompense out loud. Me and Steve and Otis were in the back room praying at the first service and just kind of talking through sermon stuff before the service started. And it just kind of hit me like, have I ever used the word? I mean, I've read it, but I haven't spoken it out loud. It's not in my vocabulary every day, right? Recompense, right? Just. But here's the thing about biblical vocabulary that for believers, we need to get familiar with it. Can you imagine not using justification and trying to explain that to your children or atonement or the mercy seat or the Passover? I mean, these are biblical words that convey deep meaning. And to the degree that we elevate our biblical literacy to that degree and that degree alone, can we understand the height and depth and breadth and width of God's love for us in Jesus? And so we're gonna use the word recompense, right? What does it mean? It's not in our passage. It was actually in the passage that Steve read from Revelation, where Jesus says, behold, I am coming, and my recompense is with me to repay each one for what he has done. What is recompense, right? It's a word that's borrowed from economics. And this, this happens in the Bible, right? Last week, Paul borrowed slavery in the Greco-Roman world. And he says, look, as you can understand slavery in that day, that begins to shine light on your condition outside of Jesus. And so what Jesus is doing in Revelation is borrowing this word recompense from economics in his day and saying there are truths about the kingdom, preferably eschatology, the end times, right? That if you can get your mind around this, then it helps you to understand more about who I am. If you were to go look at rental agreements 
contracts between basket weavers and nurses and butchers and scientists and actors and soldiers and dancers. In Jesus' day, you would see this word. It's payment for services rendered. But it's not just payment for services rendered. It's just payment for services rendered. In other words, you cannot expect to do shoddy work or default on your responsibilities and then circle back and get payment. Recompense does not allow that. Neither could you do great work, good work, and have payment forfeited. That when recompense is used, it it, it is truly in response to what has been done. And that's what Jesus says, I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, lay that on top of this passage and you'll see it. When Jesus returns, he's repaying with two things. In verse 34, look at it. When the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He also calls this eternal life down in verse 46. So in one hand, he has the kingdom, this kingdom that has been prepared and tweaked and worked on from the foundation of the world, eternal life. That is in his hand to repay Now, what's in the other hand to repay? You see that right there in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse into the eternal fire. Also prepared, right? Same word, prepared for the devil and his angels. If you go down to verse 46, it's also called eternal punishment. Now, now, now take this in. It's two payments. You either get eternal life and the kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world, or you get hell prepared also by Christ for Satan and his demons. Guess what? There is no third option. There is no cryptocurrency, right? There's no third thing out there. On that day when Jesus returns, everyone will get paid and no one will walk away empty handed. Now, here's the question. Why? Why is this all you got for us, Jesus? Why why can't there be something called purgatory where we get a do-over? Why can't we be reincarnated and become something else and become something else until we can get something else? Like, why? Why only two forms of payment? Because there are only two types of people in the world. God has blessed us with amazing diversity, Redeemer. He's blessed the world with amazing diversity. We are women and we are men. We're children. We're adults. We're married. We're single. We're extroverts. We're introverts. We have gifts of prophecy and service and interpretation and mercy, and administration, diversity of gifts. We're white, we're black, we're mixed. We live in America, 
We live in Africa. We live in Italy. We live in Russia. We live in Australia. We live in different ages. There is this beautiful diversity to the world. And here is the temptation. The temptation, and this is the pull of the world. The pull of the world is to lie to us and say that those are the defining markers of our identity, right? But here's what Paul says in Galatians. Paul says in Galatians, there is no longer slave. There is no longer free. There is no longer Jew or Greek or male or female. We are one in Christ Jesus. So what is Paul doing? Paul is saying those other identities take a back seat to that chief identity. And so the question becomes, are you in Jesus or are you not? You see, the reason that there are two repayments is because there are only two types of people in the world. Those who have bowed the knee to Jesus, those who see their need for righteousness, those who have ceased to work, those who have trusted in the work and the atoning work of Jesus, those who have been found in him not having a righteousness of their own, not for a righteousness that comes from the law, but a righteousness that is ours because of God's grace through faith that he gives us. It's only those kind of people and those who follow the course of the world, those who don't know him, who have not bowed the knee. It's only two types of people. And that's why there's only two payments given. Now, how will Jesus ensure that everyone gets according to who they are? Look at verse 32. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Notice the analogy. Separation will happen as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. Now, here's a question for you. What's the one thing or the numerous things that you know so well that you can't be deceived? Right? Maybe you're a football coach, right? And you know the play that you just called to be run. And you know where your receivers were supposed to line up and where your running back was supposed to line up and how your linemen were supposed to block. And they didn't do that. As a coach, because this is what you do, you know he didn't pull right or he didn't run the right route. The, 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 the spectators may not know, but you're the coach, you know. Or maybe you look at MRIs all day and x-rays and you tell someone they have a ruptured disc on T3. We don't know what T3 is and L3 and L5 and L12. Like, I, I don't, we don't know what that is. But if you're in that field, you know what that is. Or maybe you're in finance and you can look at a balance sheet and you instantly know something ain't adding up. Or maybe you have a child and your child is in the nursery and you hear cries, you hear cries and cries, kids crying. But, 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 
Don't you know the particular cry of your own child? You're not deceived. You birthed that baby. You get up in the night and you feed that baby. You change that baby's diaper. Them other mamas might not know who the baby is, but you know the cry of your baby. Why am I going there? Because Jesus says at the end of time, the separation that will take place will happen as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. Shepherds might can't do a lot of stuff. They might can't change your oil, but they know the difference between a sheep and a goat. They know how they smell and how they sound. They know that sheep grow wool and they have to be sheared. And goats grow hair and they do not have to be. They know that sheep prefer to eat food that is close to the soil and goats are more agile and prefer vegetation a little bit higher. They know that the tail of the sheep points downward and the tail of the goat points upward. They may not know a lot of stuff, but they have mastered animal husbandry. And what Jesus is saying, in the end, I will separate people because I know humans. I made humans. I breathe life into humans. I'm ascended right now and I see humans. I hold it all together right now, right? That the darkness is not dark with me. I know where my Holy Spirit has gone out from me and my Father. And I know on earth who is indwelled by my Spirit. It's my Spirit, says Jesus. And furthermore, if it's not a knowledge of excellency, if it's not a knowledge of lordship, then certainly it's a knowledge because he took on flesh. He actually came down and became like a human, not an animal, not an angel. He became like you and I. So now he has infinitely more knowledge of humanity, not from a lofty, I made it position, but from a, I became one of you. I know what temptation is. I know what it's like to be tried. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to be tempted. I know what it's like to be at work and to have splinters in my hand. I know what it's like to be tired. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be grieved when you lose someone. You have a Messiah in Jesus who knows humans and what is in humans. And therefore, if we think a shepherd or a mechanic or a coach or a cook or a teacher or a doctor can be trained to tell the difference, do we not think that on that day that Jesus is going to make a mistake? He can't. He won't. And what he has for all humanity, one of two things. You either get the righteous kingdom, and the language in this text is that he has been preparing it since the foundation of the world. He told his disciples, I go to you, don't be afraid, and my father's house are many rooms, and I go and prepare a place for you.
and I'm going to come back to you. And so one of the things that the resurrected Jesus is doing right now is preparing that place that your heart was made for. And every day that he does not come back is another day where he makes it more beautiful and more perfect and more righteous and more holy and more beautiful. Don't your hearts want to see it? But the delay in his coming also means that one of the other things that the Lord Jesus is doing is tweaking hell. You see, he has prepared that place too. And every day that he delays, he gets to shut out a little more light. He gets to make it a little more righteously, eternally, just. He gets to get the temperature as hot as he needs to get it to be requisite with what it means to spurn the free offer of his grace in Christ. Here's the thing. Those are the only payments he has for everyone. His coming is certain, and he's not coming empty-handed. He's coming with his recompense. Now, the final point How might his servants be ready? That's the million dollar question. It's the question that the context is begging to ask and answer. How can we not be like those in the day of Noah? How can we not be like the the women who did not have enough oil? How can we not be like the servants who squandered their talents? How are we ready, Jesus? How can we make our calling and election sure, Jesus? Jesus says, when I return, may I find you doing the will of the Father. Now, Jesus could have said what Peter said, right? He could have said, hey, you ought to be living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the coming day of the Lord, since you are waiting to be found in him, be found without spot or blemish and at peace. Take care not to be carried away by lawless people, rather grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus could have said what Peter said, but that's not what Jesus says in Matthew 25. And here's the thing, do not hear these things in competition. Peter is saying, be repenting, be practicing holiness, be not conformed to the world, but be being renewed by the the, the word of God, be growing in grace, right? That's what Peter is saying. But Jesus says something different. And I don't think he means we literally need to be doing this to prove that we are ready when he returns, because when he returns, it's going to be daylight over here, maybe. And it might be nighttime somewhere else. And some folks are going to be sleeping. Some people are going to be at work. Some people are going to be in worship. Some people are going to be having kids, right? And so I don't think what Jesus is saying, hey, at the the precise time I I come back, right? This is what you need to be doing. No. I think what he's saying is 
This is who you ought to be becoming. When I return, this is who you ought to be known for. When I return, this should characterize your life. Well, what is it? Notice in this passage, there are other passages, but in this passage, you see it right there in verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. That that's the mark of those ready for the return. It's a love for neighbor. It's a willingness to be inconvenienced for neighbor. It's a compassion for other people. And on one hand, I look at this and I'm like, Jesus, how, how is this so? I ain't never had you at my dinner table, right? And how can the glorified Jesus be sick? And who can imprison the glorified Jesus, right? Who, who? Like, those are questions that, that, that we ought to be asking. Like, Jesus, what do you mean? And these are the precise questions that the righteous ask Jesus. And they say, Jesus, right? Look at verse 37. And then they will say, Jesus, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then Jesus drops the bombshell in verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Whoa. So who are the least of my brothers? Some will say, hey, all you got to do is start a food pantry and feed people and you work your way into heaven. Hey, Matthew 25. Hey, start a prison outreach. Just go, go meet with prisoners and you get into heaven. Right. Or sometimes, hey, anytime you see anyone homeless, bring them in your house. Right. And, and work your way in. But I don't think that's how we're to read this. And the key has is what does Jesus say? The least of these. My brothers. What does that mean? Who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus? Matthew 12 tells us that, doesn't it? That Jesus is teaching and the man comes and says, your mother and your brother, they're outside. They want to speak with you. And Jesus holds up his hands, looking at the disciples. And he says, these are my brothers and my mothers. And so what I actually think Jesus wants us to see here is you can tell our love for him by our love for the church. We are his brothers and his sisters. And what I think Jesus is saying is, hey, you in the back, you who have never written a book, you're not published. You who never has your name on a brick as being the top donor, right? You who don't have a lot of followers, right? You who are relatively unknown and unpopular in the world, but you're mine. You in the back of the line, you, 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 you come up front. And what I'm going to say to the church is how did you treat them? 
Right? I think that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he is so unified to the church that if you persecute the church, Acts, Saul, you persecute Jesus. If you visit the church in prison, you visit Jesus. If you bless the poor in the church, you bless Jesus. If you care for the sick in the church, you care for Jesus. And so what Jesus is actually saying is those who are needy are gifts to the body. You're not a nuisance. You're a gift. You're an opportunity for us to align what we say with who we really are. If the church does not have the needy among us, then we look more like a country club than we do the community of believers that God is redeeming. And here's what it means. It means that at any point in this room, it could be us. All of us are one tragedy away from being needy. We're one besetting sin away from being needy. We're one bitter providence away from being needy. We're one divorce away from being needy. We're one COVID or cancer test positive away from being needy. One day I may be one sermon away in prison for preaching the gospel and being needy. We're one act of violence away from being needy. And what Jesus says that those who are truly ready for his future return are those who meet present needs in the body with compassion and grace and presence. We walk into the prison and we sit with those who are imprisoned. We take food off of our table and we give it to those in the body who are alone. When someone is alone on Christmas and we know about it, we enter into their aloneness and we do it with them. That is radical. Amen. There's a show called The Undercover Boss. And executives go undercover. Um, a, a CEO or CFO might wear a, a fake mustache. A female executive might take off that power suit and put on a wig. And what they do is they disguise their true identity. And they go in and become the average day laborer. They've gone into waste management companies, pizza delivery companies, Moe's, burritos, right? Smoothie King, that these big executives go undercover and they go and make smoothies and pick up trash and deliver pizzas. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes they come across horrible employees. Like one delivery guy for Donato's Pizza, he has the CFO of the company riding shotgun in his car. And they're in a, in, a, in a college town, and this guy just starts to spill his guts. Let me, tell you, let me tell you a little secret. 
Sometimes when I go to the college parties, I puff a little bit, right? <laughs> or I drink a little bit. It seems like I want to fire him like right now, but I can't, right? Sometimes the, the, the owner of the, the smoothie companies, they go undercover and these employees like don't follow measurements. They don't put ingredients in. They're nasty with customers and they're just taking all of this in. And you know what happens at the end when they realize that this is the CEO who went, went undercover. And they say, yeah, I'm about to lose my job. It's like, yeah, you about to lose your job, right? But sometimes the undercover boss goes in and they find good employees who are patient and tender and present, who won't throw you in the kitchen and just make you wash dishes without telling you how to operate the dishwasher, who will come in work five minutes early 10 minutes early and show you how to separate trash and make sure that you have the proper PPE on so that you don't get your fingers cut off. One of my favorite employees is a guy who works for a hotel chain. He does not know that the CEO is in his room and this guy is pushing him, testing him, testing him. I need this and I need this. And the guy shows up, yes, sir, I'm on it. Yes, sir, I'm on it. Yes, sir, I got it. And finally, the CEO is so overwhelmed at the tenderness of this man that he breaks identity. He says, tell me your story. And you find out that this man is a single dad whose wife just left him. He's had to drop out of school. He has custody of their daughter. And he's doing the best he can. And the CEO says, I want to give you a $50,000 trust fund for your baby. I want to give you $25,000 right now. And I want to send you back to college and I'm paying for it all. Amen. What if I told you that Jesus is the undercover boss? What if I told you that in the incarnation, he came undercover? And in the incarnation, he lived the life that you and I can't live and died the death that we deserve. And he has so united himself to his people that even though he has ascended to the right hand of God, he's undercover in the church. And the mark of our love for him is not how we smile in his face if we knew he was the Messiah and was present. The mark of our true hearts, how do we treat the body? I suppose, right, that we have some repenting to do. I know I do. And I also suppose that some of you are hearing me saying, man, he is preaching salvation by works. I'm not. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Jesus alone. The reason for the first coming is because humans can't get right. And so God has to step in and intervene to rescue us. 
and when God himself graciously lavishes us and gives us the gift of faith, he does more than pardon you and I in the future. He actually puts the spirit of the living Jesus in us right now. And so as you see the Lord Jesus caring about John the Baptist who was in prison, as you see him caring about people who don't have food, as you see the Lord Jesus moving towards the sick and not away from them, if the same spirit of Jesus is inside of us, then our hearts will move and respond accordingly. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, but saving faith is never alone. Amen. He changes us. Here's the thing about sheep and goats. What you see in this passage is the fruit of a new life and not the root. Sheep have 60 chromosomes. Goats have 54. They are two totally different species. Where does the wool from the sheep come from? Is the sheep working by its wool to become a sheep? Or is the DNA in the sheep such that real sheep will grow wool? That's what this passage is about. That when the new birth happens and the spirit of God is in you, you and I become different creatures. May the Lord Jesus help us. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. Jesus, we thank you. This is one of the many litmus tests of our readiness for your return. It's how we treat the body here and now. Father, I imagine that, that we all need to repent. And as long as there's life and breath, then you invite us to do so. Father, I do thank you for the many in this church who show their affection for you through their tenderness and their prayers and their mercy and their showing up and their writing and their cooking. Father, what a sweet, sweet community of believers. And I pray that we would uh, hearken and hasten the day of the Lord Jesus by being found ready. Help us to be a people, God, who are so moved by what you've done for us on the cross that we see it seeping out in our affection for the church. And make no mistake about it, Jesus says the world will know that you have come through our love for one another. And so, Father, knit our hearts together. Give grace where grace is needed. Give mercy where mercy is needed. Give conviction where conviction is needed. Make us a people whose lamps are shining when the Lord returns. So help us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.